Hello, this is Manny Ramos, your host of Rise Up, Real Issues and Stories of Every One of Us podcast. First, let me talk about who we are. I'm Manny Ramos, a board member of PNAA and a past president of the Philippine Nurses Association of Central Florida. I'm a professor of nursing at Valencia College in Orlando and an adjunct faculty at William Patterson University. With me is my co-host, Mindy Ofiana. Mindy? Thank you, Manny. Welcome, everyone. I'm Mindy Ofiana, Legislative Committee Chair for PNAA, Corresponding Secretary for PNAA Foundation, and a past president of PNA Southern California. I'm currently as adjunct faculty at the Charles R. Drew University Department of Medicine and Sciences. Manny? Thank you, Mindy. In this episode, we are starting a series about the program of NIH All of Us Project. To start up the series, we have a special guest, Dr. Kareem Watson. We will have two episodes with Dr. Watson today. We'll get to know more about Dr. Watson. In part two, we'll talk about the All of Us Project. Dr. Kareem S. Watson is the Chief Engagement Officer of the National Institutes of Health, All of Us Research Program. Dr. Watson leads the All of Us Research Program's effort to foster relationships with participants, communities, researchers, and providers across the U.S. to help build one of the largest, most diverse health databases of its kind to study health and illness. Prior to joining the NIH, Dr. Watson spent over 15 years as a community-engaged research scientist with prior research funding from the NIH addressing cancer prevention and control. Dr. Watson also held administrative roles in leading research and engagement in federally qualified health centers in the Chicago area. Good afternoon, Dr. Watson. Uh, welcome to Rise Up. Thank you, Manny, and good afternoon, and good afternoon to you as well, Mindy. Good afternoon. Good to have you at Rise Up, Dr. Watson. I know, I, as I heard a while ago, that, that Chicago's weather is so great. So could you tell us more about yourself? Sure. Well, thank you so much for that question. Um, I like to consider myself uh, a Southerner, but that's interesting because I was not officially born in the South, but I feel that I have Southern roots because both of my parents were from, from the South. My dad was from Arkansas and my mother was from Mississippi. And I like to say that I'm, I'm from the South because I, my, my cultural roots, a lot of my, 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 my beliefs are rooted in deep Southern values, but I was actually born in the Midwest in Muskegon, Michigan. Michigan, um, Muskegon Hikes, Michigan, in a small town there. And I grew up in Michigan. Um, but then I came to Chicago about 21, 20 years ago for graduate school. And I've been here ever since. So I've been in Chicago for over 21 years now. Oh, so so most of your um, time uh, growing up was spent in Chicago. Yeah, I, I like this kind of interesting to see that, Manny, that I've spent more, almost more than almost half of my life in Chicago compared to being in Michigan. Yes, I see. How was it like there in Chicago? It's a it's an amazing city, but um, not, not but it's an amazing city. One of the most culturally diverse cities in the in the nation. For example, one of the Chicago is a is a city of community areas. We have seventy seven community areas in Chicago, and the beauty of those community areas is that it gives you an opportunity within within a block's distance. You can go from one cultural experience to another cultural experience. And when I think about community areas in Chicago, like we have on the north side. 
side of Chicago, we have a community area called Rogers Park. In that community area, there's it's one of the most languages spoken in the Midwest out of any other community area and one of the most diverse cities in, in the U.S., when it comes to languages and cultures. I see. So how did that um, affect you or, or have an influence on you? Yeah, that's a great question, Manny. Um, when I was growing up in Muskegon Heights, Michigan, it's a very small town. And in, in that small town, I, I was, it was not that diverse. It was primarily predominantly African-American in Muskegon Heights. But I had this interest of travel. My dad, I, I'm, I'm dating myself and telling you my age now, but this was back when there was no, not, not internet, there was no World Wide Web. There was encyclopedias. And my dad used to buy us encyclopedias. And if you oh. ever had a question about something, and you, if you ever told my dad that you were bored, he would say, I've spent all this money on encyclopedias. You cannot be bored. He would tell you to go and read, go and look up something. But he also had um, subscriptions to magazines such as, such as Ebony Magazine. Ebony Magazine was a very popular magazine in the homes of many African-Americans. It was one of the first magazines started by an African-American publisher, John Johnson, and it just happened to be based out of Chicago. Although it was an international and national magazine, it was based out of Chicago. And ev every month you got this magazine. And, and I remember looking into the Ebony magazine, looking at the pages, and I remember explicitly they would talk about the top 10 best cities for African-Americans to live in. And I would look in that and I would dream and I'd, I would explore. And at the time, Detroit was one of those cities, Detroit, mm -hmm. Michigan. And I lived in Detroit because I remember reading that magazine. I went to graduate school in Detroit. And then I remember reading about Chicago and all the great things that were happening in Chicago, all the big faith. They had big churches, big faith based communities. And I just like I said to myself, Chicago is going to be on my stop as well. And I've been very fortunate that, you know, if you dream it, you can kind of make it happen. I lived in both of the cities where I said I wanted to live. Mm -hmm. Do you always know that you're going to be in the field of research in the medical science? And were your parents supportive of that pursuit? My parents were very, very supportive of that pursuit. Um, and yes, I, I will say, Mindy, at a young age, I knew I was going to go into the field of research and or science. I can't say that I knew exactly what I would do, but I've always, always had a passion and a love for science. Um, I still remember my eighth grade science project or my, my, my eighth grade science project when I was looking at chlorophyll, the impact of bleach on chlorophyll in plants and how it impacted those plants. And so I always tell teachers, you never know the impact that you'll have on a student and what a, something as simple as an eighth grade science project will do for you. But um, it was also, Mindy, my lived experience. Um, early on, I was introduced to health disparities as a child because my birth mother was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was very young. And so I spent a lot of time visiting my mother in the hospital and, and learning, unfortunately learning about what it meant to take care of someone that was dealing with cancer. And my mother lost her battle early to breast cancer. So she died from complications from breast cancer when I was about seven years old. And so I learned early on what health disparities can do. And I got an interest in, in, in cancer disparities at that time and began to always think about how can I be a part of medical research or medical breakthroughs so that other young boys didn't have to go through what I went through as a child. Wow. Uh, that must have been um, 
quite an experience that had, uh, I, I, it, it feels like it had a huge impact on you. Now, did you find any barriers to the career path that you're, that you chose? Oh, Manny, that's a whole nother episode about barriers. <laughs> I, would, I would take up the, 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 the Rise Up podcast would be called the bar- <laughs> Addressing Barriers. <laughs> well, briefly, or let's touch on it. Let's visit it. <laughs> yeah, yes, um, there's so many barriers. But yeah. um, while, while I had barriers, I also had solutions and I had supporters. Mm-hmm. So I was so blessed that for every barrier and every obstacle that I had, I had someone there to tell me that I could do it and to help me to remove those barriers. Like I said earlier, Manny, I grew up in a very small town um, in Muskegon, Michigan, Muskegon Heights, Michigan, which is on the western side of the state of Michigan. And then growing up in that small town, and, and it was predominantly African-American, and, and the teachers I had were predominantly African-American, and they came, and many of those teachers came from historically black colleges and universities in the south to teach up north. And so I grew up with this rich cultural heritage of people just pouring into me in a very positive way. I grew up hearing stories and, and seeing images of black teachers, black research, not black, black. There was one black doctor in our hometown. There was black attorneys that were my father's friends. You know, our accountants were, were African-American, our teachers, my pastors. So I grew up with these images of, of black people in leadership and doing amazing things. And those same people often encouraged me and they told me what I could do and that the sky was the limit, that if I kept God first in my life, I could do anything I set my mind to. So then I go away to college and I go to the University of Michigan, where I'm now one of the few blacks in these science classes. And many times the first culture shock was being the only. And I would go into these classrooms and they were big, almost amphitheater type stadiums. And I remember walking into my first organic chemistry class and I looked down the stairs and it's hundreds and hundreds of rows of, and then when I got to the class and sat in that row, I I like to sit in the front (laughs) and I looked back And there was very few faces in that class that looked like me. And for the first time in my life, I I questioned whether I belonged. And then I had some people, some some people tell me that I didn't belong. I had some people question whether I belong. And then when I told people I wanted to be a a biology major and go into the sciences, I definitely had people, Manny, telling me that I could not do it. Mm -hmm. I remember explicitly sitting in a counselor's office one time and that counselor looking me in the eye, telling me that they did not think that I had what it took to what it what it what it took to be a a health disparity, to be a researcher and that I should just I should choose another career. You know, with all those encounters that you just mentioned, the ups and downs of being the only colored person within an, an uh, within an environment, who actually um, impacted significant impact in your life? Well, that's a great question, Mindy. And, and like you said, sometimes being the only person of color in these environments, you you need people that a you see who have made it. So when I was an, an undergrad, when that happened, I looked to a couple professors that looked like me and I gained, I, I got relationships with them and I went to talk to them about what did it look like. But, and when I was in graduate school, Mindy, I remember looking along the walls of the hallway, you know how they have those pictures of the graduating classes. I remember looking at one of the graduating classes that was back in the, the early forties or fifties or something like that. And, and I only, and I remember seeing one black face in that, 
graduating class photo. And I thought to myself, if you can do it back when, and I said, at the time when you were in school here, you could not have even, you didn't even have the right to enter into the front door. I at least had a chance to walk through the front door because of the sacrifices that you made. So I grew up with strong spiritual beliefs, too. So I grew up being able to encourage yourself to be able to speak positively into your life. But also, Mindy, you asked who helped me overcome those barriers. It was my parents. You know, it was my dad. and, And although my birth mother died when I was young, my dad remarried. So I had a new mom. I had a bonus mom. So it was my dad and my mom and my siblings and my community and family and friends always telling me that they believed in me and that I could do whatever I set my mind to do. So I'm listening to your story, Dr. Watson, and um, there was that uh, significant experience you had early in your life when you lost your mother. Um, and also, uh, it, 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 I hear that you're really very interested in the sciences, but what made you choose this uh this line of uh, career that you're in now? Yeah, I, I can't say I chose it, Manny. I mean, I'm, I'm more <laughs> so that it chose me. Oh, um, <laughs> it, it, it was it was through a series of failures. It was through a series, <laughs> a lot of mistakes, a lot uh-huh. of bumps in the roads, a lot of trying things that didn't work out. So I thought I, I, I thought that I was going to go down one career path that didn't work. Uh-huh. I would go down another career path that, that didn't work. And I began to think about all the things that interested me that I was interested in. And I learned about clinical research as a result of of feeling like I didn't have other options. And when I learned about clinical research, I said, this is perfect. Why didn't anyone tell me about it before? The same with in public health. When I finally learned about what public health was, Manny, mm-hmm. I was like, this is exactly who I am. And I, no one definitely told me about what community engagement was. I didn't know. I had never heard the words community engagement uh-huh. growing up that I'm aware of, that I remember. And I definitely had not heard the words a community engaged researcher. I know I did not hear those words. So it really was in my late, my young adulthood, when I found out about community research, Mm -hmm. community based participatory research, community engaged research, um, and, 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 and even clinical trials. These were things I had no idea about. Um, as much exposure I had with the healthcare system, I had never heard that the drugs that my, the, the chemotherapy that my mother took went through an FDA approved process. I didn't know what that was like because many people don't know. We just, our doctor writes your, or your nurse practitioner, your provider writes your prescription and you take the medication. Right. You don't ask a lot of questions about how that medication was developed. Did it go through research? We don't typically we didn't we did not used to ask those questions so I fell into this field Manny mm. it found you <laughs> it found me so they found you how did you find yourself working with NIH <laughs> well I, now that was a little bit different uh, Mindy how I found myself working with NIH I, I, I'm a big believer in um, dream boards and vision boards mm-hmm. and, and writing things down and since I was a little kid I used to cut out pictures of magazines and poems that I wanted places I wanted to go on vacation and then I grew up and I found out that was a thing called vision boards I never knew that was a, a thing called vision boards growing up I just knew I wanted a, 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 a life that could afford me the things that I wanted to do and people that I wanted to help. And um, 
when I was in my career, um, I met a researcher and a the cancer director. His name was Dr. Robert Wynn. Dr. Wynn was a cancer researcher, but he was also at the time taking over our cancer center at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He was becoming the cancer center director. And at the time, Dr. Wynn was one of the first the few African-American cancer center directors in the country. And so when I began to talk to Dr. Wynn and he, he took me under his wings as a mentee, he mentored me, he began to tell me about NIH funding. Now, I knew about NIH funding because I had worked in a previous program that was looking at strokes and other cerebrovascular disease at the universities. So I knew about NIH funding, but I, and I knew that it was important for researchers to get NIH funding. But I didn't I didn't really know until I met Dr. Wynn that one day I could get NIH funding. And so the first way, Mindy, that I learned about the NIH was not working here, but I learned about the importance of being an NIH funded researcher. I learned that the National Institute of Health was one of the nation's largest funded of research. And so I knew that I set my, I, set, I then set my goals on wanting to get funding by the NIH. And then as I got funded by the NIH, I then said, you know what? I like this, but I like being the borrower, but I want to be the lender. I want to be the one making the decisions of how do you ensure that communities get the resources they need. It was great being on the side of getting the money from the NIH, but I wanted to be on the side of the NIH that that helped to make the decisions and to make those decisions in an equitable way to ensure that all communities, all types of researchers had access to the funding and resources and support that they needed. So Dr. Watson, to be the chief engagement officer for the All of Us Research Program is a very important uh, position. So what interested you to become the chief engagement officer of All of Us Research Program? Thank, that's a great question, Manny. What interested me in becoming the chief engagement officer for the All of Us Research Program was really the respect and the engagement that I had with the program all along. Um, the first chief engagement officer, the inaugural chief engagement officer, Dr. Dara Richardson Heron, did an amazing job of being the first person in this role. And I looked up to Dr. Richardson Heron, and I still do. I looked up to her as a as a healthcare leader, as someone who championed for equity and equity and access. And so when I was involved, I've been involved in the All of Us Research Program since its inception, though. Um, although I've been involved in it both as a community um, champion, promoting the program and talking about the importance of diverse diverse participations in research. But I also was a part of it when the institution that I was uh, working at, the Illinois, the University of Illinois Chicago, was one of the first funded institutions part of the All of Us Research Program. So I've been involved with all of us in some way or another since about 2016, 2017, Manny. And it was at that time that I was I really saw the commitment that the program had to including and engaging the community. And that's when I first had my 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 first level of appreciation for, for what it meant. And then when the position became available, I, I jumped at the opportunity because I had also been working with the All of Us Research Program um, since about 2017, mm -hmm. helping to build up their community engagement core, working with Dr. Consuelo Wilkins and at Meharry Vanderbilt and even working with some of the team that I now currently oversee or work with. Mm -hmm. What are the opportunities being in that role for uh, all of us program? 
That's a great question, Minnie. I would say the main opportunities for me being in the role as chief engagement officer for the All of Us Research Program is really to develop, implement, and ensure that there is a national community engagement platform that is ensuring that community members have a voice at the table. As the chief engagement officer, it's my 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 role to ensure that that equity and inclusion are a part of of community engagement efforts. We're very fortunate in the All of Us Research Program to have a director of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access, Dr. Martin Mendoza. And I work very closely with Dr. Mendoza to ensure that along with community engagement, there's there's equity and a commitment to equity and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, but also to ensure that community members, as well as our participants, have a voice in what we do and how we do it. So your All of Us research program uh, aims to foster relationships with participants, communities, researchers, and providers across the U.S. Uh, with, with the goal to build one of the largest and most diverse health databases of its kind to study health and illnesses. Could you tell us uh, how it is to work with the diverse communities and, and what are they? Oh, that's a great question, Manny. I am so proud of the diverse communities that the All of Us Research Program is working with. Even today, my time here with you in the, the, the Rise Up podcast, it's because of our amazing community partner, the Asian Health Coalition. It's because of Sia and Fernessa Rando and Dr. Kim, Dr. Karen Kim, that I have the opportunity to engage with researchers, with scholars and with community members from the Asian American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander community. And we, I'm able to do that in an authentic way because of the relationship we have with the Asian Health Coalition and the leadership and the commitment of the Asian Health Coalition in this space. But we, in addition to engaging our Asian American and Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander population, we are also very committed to engaging other populations that have that have been historically underrepresented in biomedical research. For example, we have several community partners that engage African-Americans and, and groups of African descent. We have several community partners that work with Hispanic and Latino stakeholders. We have several community partners that ensure that we're working with sexual and gender minority community, the LGBT plus QI community, several, even a commitment, Manny, to thinking about populations that have been marginalized and not included, like populations living with disabilities, populations that are older, populations in the rural South, populations in, that don't have access to care. You know, this, we faith-based communities. We have been so intentional, Manny, in ensuring that we have a network of community stakeholders that truly reflects the rich diversity of the U.S. You mentioned a while ago about health equity. Can you expound on that more, please? Yeah, thank you so much, Minnie. That's a great question. When I think about health equity, I think beyond equality. Equality is assuming that everything is equal. Equality may mean that I give, you know, everyone, if, if I give everyone, you know, 10 pieces of paper, that that's equality. But equity says that I may have given everyone 10 pieces of paper, but of those of three people that I've given those 10 pieces of paper, two of them may not have an ink pen. So even though I've given everyone the same piece of paper, two of them don't even have the ink pen to write on, write with. And one of those persons, Mindy, might not even have a table to write on. So I'm thinking that I've given equality because I've given everyone the same thing. But I have not thought about 
equity in terms of who those people are, where they live, what they have access to, and how that determines how they're able to use those pieces of paper that I may have given them. I had good intentions to give those those three community members the same amount of those pieces of paper to write with, but my intentions were good, but I didn't take into account that one of them didn't have a desk to write on and that two of them maybe did not have an ink pen. And so to me, equity is not just it moves beyond equality. It moves beyond making sure that things are equal. Equity takes into account systemic and historical barriers that have prevented certain communities from having access to care, from having a seat at the table, from being able to make sure that they're able to live and have access to health care quality of, and a quality of health care, despite their socioeconomic background, despite their race, despite their religious beliefs, despite their sexual orientation, despite their geography, even despite their citizenship status. No matter what, equity says that you should have access to get everything you need in order to achieve your best life. As a nation, Dr. Watson, uh, how do you think are we in, in trying to achieve that health equity that you talked about? Where are we in, in that uh, work? I think I'm an optimist, Manny, by nature. So when I think where are we as a nation in achieving health equity, um, I like to start off by saying I'm an optimist and, and, I'm a, and I, I like to think about what, how we're winning and not how we're losing. And so I think we're doing, I think we're making great progress. We have a long way to go, but we're making great progress. I think about my parents, um, both my, my, my father, both my biological mother and my other mother, both were for all three of them are from the South. And when I think about that African-Americans are one of the few groups that actually had to migrate within their country of origin in order to get access to a better quality of life. We know that we know a lot about our, our immigration process, and I'm so loved that the U.S. is a place that is this beacon of hope. But my parents actually had to migrate their country of origin within their country of origin to get better access to education opportunities. So when I think about my dad leaving the segregated South to come up North to give his children a better quality of, to better quality of life and education and access, I can see the progress that we made. Um, I'm the youngest of nine kids. I can see the progress that my parents made between my oldest sibling and the things that she had to, the challenges she had to things that I didn't have to go through because of, you know, sacrifices that my parents made. Um, when I talk to young people, I, I, you know, it's so much progress that has been made. So many things, I see diversity and equity in so many places that I didn't see even in my earlier days as a research scientist, but we still have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Dr. Watson, what would you consider essential issues to be addressed in, re- in health research? Um, this, when I think of cons- essential issues that need to be addressed in health research, I think of those issues that lead to some of the highest health disparities that we see in our country. Um, Mindy, one of the essential, is- essential issues that's been growing for me is a health, it's, it's, it's not a health outcome in and of itself, but it's something that drives health outcomes. And those are the social determinants of health. When you think about those health outcomes, it's important for us to think about what does someone have access to healthy foods? 
Does someone have access to a safe environment? Does someone have access to education? Does someone have access to a job that's going to pay a living wage? Does someone have access to a home where they can get a good night's rest and sleep and, and, and feel safe and not be discriminated with? Does someone feel that they can have all the protections and the rights of, of being an, a, a living in this country. Those are what we call the social determinants of health, because those are the things that can impact our health outcomes just as much. Other areas of research, I think, that are important, I, I would be remiss to say that genetics and genomics and our DNA, what, how we, you know, things that we may be born with are so important for us to study. And while there's, but when we think about conditions, Mindy, like cancer, only about 10% or less of cancers are due to genetic or defects that we're quote unquote born with. So there must be other things happening that's leading to these disparities in cancer outcomes so that we're seeing. So I think one of the critical issues in research is what I call intersectionality. It's, it's, it's understanding both the biology and the sociology, understanding both the cellular mechanisms as well as the community mechanisms that may be interacting to lead to some of the outcomes that we're seeing. I don't think one condition is more important than the other. I think when you think about conditions that impact communities at disproportionate rates, you think about cardiovascular disease, you think about cancer diabetes, but you also got to think about exposure to violence. You got to think about mental health. These are all things that are important. So for me, when I think about research, I don't think about one condition. I think about research as asking questions that can address multiple conditions and the intersectionalities that exist. So one of the biggest changes I believe that I saw with the Healthy People 2030 compared to the Healthy People 2020 was the inclusion of the social determinants of health that you mentioned. Uh, so for the research that we all do, that you all do at NIH, uh, how did that impact uh, your priorities and, and also in relation to the All of Us research program? Manny, the, the social determinants of health are very important to the All of Us Research Program, so important that we actually have them as a part of our questions and our surveys now. So in addition to the All of Us Research Program being interested in the genomic data, in the DNA, the biological data, we are also collecting information on social determinants of health. So we're collecting information on social determinants of health about across about 12 different domains, about environment, about someone's perceived discrimination, about someone's lived in environment, about someone's physical environment, access to food, access to health care. So as a program, we have been committed to addressing the social determinants of health. And we know that that's going to be so important. I'm excited, Manny, that researchers who get access to the data from the All of Us Research Program will not just be able to say, oh, this is someone's genetic information or this is the genomic data that the All of Us Research Program has, but they'll be able to link that genomic and genetic data with the social determinants of health data. And th that really is, I think, what, what we need to do for the future of, of research to really begin to get at a lot of those health disparities that we're seeing. So has there been a an increased funding to to do this research related to social determinants of health? I think there has been an increase in awareness as well as increased resources to do this work, Manny. I can definitely say that 
prior to 10 years ago or 15 years ago, when I first started my research career, you did not see a lot of or hear about a lot of grants that were funding researchers to ask questions about the social determinants of health. And I've been very excited about this new emergence of funders, both from the National to the Health, the CDC and other places that are intentionally asking researchers to pay attention and ask questions about social determinants of health. We're seeing more awareness and more attention to that and more funding opportunities for it. So, yes, I'm excited about that. Dr. Watson, I'm hearing you with all those um, funding, the research stuff, social determinants. What do you feel personally, you, with the work that you do with NIH? What do you feel about it? Oh, that's such a great question, Mindy. What, what do I feel about it? I'll, I'll tell you a story. When, when I first, I started at the NIH only about six months ago in September of 2021. And I started at the NIH, you know, still during the midst of the pandemic. And I remember going to get my ID badge at the NIH. And I remember walking on the campus. And if you've ever been to the National Institute of Health and you see the building, it's this beautiful brick, the, the, the primary, their original structures, this beautiful brick building with these pillars. And for a moment, Mindy, I, I, I felt such pride that, and I felt like I was the, the, the answer to my ancestors' prayers in a, in a certain way, because my grandmothers both were domestics in some way or another. Both my, my father's mother and my mother's mother, they worked in, in, in the domestic field. They both, one cleaned houses and, and one, one worked in cleaning restaurants and hospitals. And so when I thought about the fact that their grandson was now working at the National Institute of Health and that I was a, a researcher doing this work, you, you asked me, how did I feel personally? I felt very proud. But I also felt a huge responsibility because I knew the sacrifices that people made for me to be where I am. And while I was pr proud of where I where I got to, I knew that I was standing on the shoulders of other people that had made sacrifices that I would never know about, sacrifices that I can never dream of, of, of making that allowed me to be, to be able to be in that place. So personally, I feel very proud, but I also feel very committed to doing this work, Mindy, when it's personal for me. Um, it's very personal. When I think about cancer disparities, I don't have to think about what does it mean to have a cancer disparity. Um, you know, I know firsthand, you know, prior to starting at the NIH, my, my oldest brother died from complications of colorectal cancer. Um, and two years ago, at the height of the pandemic, my, my, my new mom, my, my, my bonus mom, who had been my mother for over 25 plus years, died from complications of lung cancer. And when I think about how cancer has personally impacted my family, Mindy, I, I'm on a personal mission to make sure that programs like the All of Us Research Program really leverage, we have researchers that can leverage the data that we have to really begin to ask those difficult questions and disentangle that data in a way that really allows us to get to move towards a cure. I see. So, you know, I, I, I am so inspired with all the things that you have said, and I wish I'm a, a young person who's trying to become a researcher. So what do you think, what advice would you give for these young researchers, young doctors who want to go to your field? 
It's a great question. Um, Mindy, I believe in mentoring. I believe in, I am a proud product of being mentored. Like I mentioned earlier, I was mentored by Dr. Robert Wynn, even, even researchers like Dr. Karen Kim from the Asian Health Coalition and from the University of Chicago. I, there was, there was those of us that did cancer disparities. We looked up to people like Dr. Kim because we knew the obstacles that she faced as an Asian American woman doing this work in leadership. And so we, we looked up to her when she made it, we felt that there was a sense of accomplishment to that. And I, we looked up to Dr. Wynn as, as a mentor. And now I hear from young people and they say, Dr. Watson, I look up to you. And I, sometimes I think, oh, no, I don't I don't want you looking up to me. That that feels like a, a, a scary responsibility to have someone looking up to you. I say, don't look up to me. Look across at me, because I feel if you're looking up to me, that means that I'm at a place where you're not. But if I say if you look over at me, that's letting you know that to some degree we're on the same level. So don't look up to me. Look over and look at me um, because I don't want to be put on a pedestal. So when I, I tell young people that I say, you know, the, one of the most important things that you can do is to find something that you're passionate about. Because if you find something that you're passionate about, if you find something that drives your purpose, everything else will fall into place. When you get those rejections, as you will, the rejection won't feel as, as it, it may feel tough, but you'll be so committed to moving beyond that rejection because you know that you're, you're, you're doing this for a bigger purpose. And I, I tell young people to, to don't think necessarily about what career you want to have because career that they want may have may not exist today. The job that they'll end up doing five years from now or 10 years from now when they graduate from medical school or graduate school, that career may not be in existence today. But I, I, I encourage them to think about what problems do you want to solve? What problems do you want to be a part of solving? And then to think about now, how do you get there? If you want to end home, the homelessness crisis in the U.S., what role will you play in ending the homeless, the home, the housing crisis in the U.S.? If you want to be a part of eradicating cancer, what role will you play in eradicating cancer? Because there's so many different ways you can do that. So um, and then I, I also encourage young people to get a support system to surround yourself with people whether it's one or two people who are your cheerleaders and your champions so that when you don't believe in yourself or so that when, when life hits you or throws you one of those curveballs, like it will do that you got somebody there that can catch you when you fall, remind you to get back up and, and, and have a support system. That's what I tell young people. You know, Dr. Watson, oh, I'm sorry. listening, <laughs> listening to your story, I'm, I'm really very inspired. And so uh, it got me to thinking also, how does NIH look like as far as uh, diversity is concerned? You know, we, it's great that we have you uh, there at NIH, but overall, how does NIH, uh, uh, as far as research field is concerned, um, how does it look like as far as diversity is concerned? Many with the NIH, we have so we have a ways to go when it thinks about when I think about representation of researchers, we have made amazing gains. When I think about especially in the role of women in leadership at the NIH, we've made significant strides. We definitely have women in roles in leadership at the NIH and across the, the uh, other areas of healthcare that we that have been unprecedented that we've never that we haven't seen in, in before. But we have a lot of work to do. I don't I don't think the glass ceiling for women in leadership has been shattered 
I think that there's cracks in that glass ceiling, but it's still a lot of work we have to do to ensure that there's more equity and inclusion of women in leadership. When I think about racial and ethnic minorities in leadership across the NIH, we definitely have more work to do in that area as well. We're, we're moving the needle, but we still have a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. Dr. Watson, the pandemic has impacted the world for over two years now. How have things changed in NIH the way the research is done during the time of COVID? That's a great question, Mindy. The the COVID pandemic, which, like you said, has been impacting us for over two years now, and it's still ongoing. It has literally changed the way we think about doing research. Um, even within our program, the All of Us Research Program, I have to give an amazing shout out to Dr. Holly Garriak and her team who helped who helped build our cohort, because Dr. Garriak and her team actually had to shut down sites. She had she and her team were responsible with ensuring that those sites that were doing research during the pandemic, when research had to cease for a moment, that that research ceased in an ethical and a safe way, that those blood samples that were collected, that those biological samples that were collected, that they were safe and that they would not be compromised. That was a huge lift. But those sites also had to shut down. They had to tell people who had got excited about the program that we have to pause data collection for a moment. And so the All of Us Research Program was not the only one that was impacted. All research programs have been in all healthcare settings have been impacted by all of us, I mean, by the, the pandemic. It made us think about how do we engage people in safe ways, right? It made us think about virtually. Um, it made us think about, it, it reminded us of the digital divide that exists. It reminded us that, you know, we talked about telehealth visits or research visits conducted via the phone or via, or via some technology platform when not everyone had access to smartphones. Not everyone had access to an internet plan that could support the broadband use of what, of many. What, so I think the pandemic really reminded us and highlighted even more so the inequities and the health disparities that existed. And so it made us as a research community think more intentionally about how do you get access to and resource to those communities that are marginalized so that they can ha- be have a seat the table. So as we're getting back to this new normal, Dr. Watson, um, how's it going as far as the, the work that you all do there at NIH? It's, it's going exceptionally well. And I, and I, again, I say it's going well because of a team. It's not going well only because of the, the research and engagement, the outreach and engagement office, but it's going well because the, one of the amazing team things that the All of Us Research Program has done is truly, truly build a team of researchers from our CEO, Dr. Josh Denny, to others that are committed to ensuring that we hire, engage, and, and support staff and team members that reflect the diversity of the U.S. You talked, Manny, about um, the diversity in the of all of us and at the NIH. I can say that while we have a long way to go in terms of diversity and leadership across the NIH, within the All of Us Research Program, we are definitely making strides in ensuring that our leadership reflects the populations in which we serve. And when I think about our team, 
I'm proud of them every day, the work that they've done. And even our community partners, like um, when I think of the work of community partners that are committed to this work, um, work of the Asian Health Coalition, for example, they were out there. They were talking to their colleagues. They were holding workshops. The Asian Health Coalition played a pivotal role in us engaging more researchers from the Asian American Pacific Islander, Native, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander community that otherwise would not have been engaged. And we've been able to do this work and stand these sites back up because of the commitment of our amazing team. I, so going back to your... Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Mindy. Oh, no. <laughs> I, ahead, Mindy. I, I, I'm, I'm just at awe listening to you, Dr. Watson, and I, <laughs> I, I don't have no more questions that I to ask you because it's like, oh, my goodness. Um, when you're talking about breast cancer, it just became personal for me. So, um, mm -hmm. because I do have one and, um, and mm -hmm. hope that research that you guys are doing will be something that I will, um, take advantage of. So anyway, um, I want to go back to, you, you know, I'm glad you mentioned mentoring Mindy and, and Dr. Watson started to talk about mentoring. Um, are you involved in, in, in mentoring? I am. I'm actively involved in mentoring. And this big smile you see on my face right now, Manny, when you <laughs> mentioned mentoring, because um, two of the students that I mentored, one that I mentored very closely and very directly, I've been mentoring him since he was maybe a sophomore in undergrad. Um, I met him when he was a sophomore and I, um, he finished his master's of public health at UIC. And now he's getting ready to start his PhD program at Tulane in New Orleans. And, and to see him and to be able to witness his journey, it makes me so proud. Out. And then another student of, of colleague of mine that that I, I talked to, um, she was not going to apply to a Ph.D. program. Um, she had originally asked me to write her a letter of recommendation for a Ph.D. program. And then I didn't hear back from her for a while. And I reached out. I said, hey, you know, when are you going to apply for this Ph.D. program? And she said, oh, I'm still thinking about it. I said, don't think about it. <laughs> Do it. We need you. I said, I need you in this role. I yeah. need you to one day to do do not what I'm doing, but to do what you will do when you have this seat. And I'm so proud of these these young people that I've had the opportunity to mentor and just play a small role in, in their life. And 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 I'm I'm because so many people, Manny, poured into me, I'm very intentional about taking time out to pour into other young people. You know, I have calls with them on Saturdays. If a young person reaches out and they say that they're interested, um, I just had lunch a couple of weeks ago with a young woman who was interested in, she's getting her PhD soon as well. And she was just talking to me about my career path. And I was just so excited to talk to this young woman because the, she's she's ready you know she's bright she's smart she's 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 just she's exactly what we need in the healthcare field for the future so i'm i'm excited and mentoring it goes both ways manny mm -hmm. i don't think that mentoring only encourages the young person i think it also encourages the older person i think it encourages the mentor yeah. because life can sometimes make you a little cynical if you're not careful right right when you when you're exposed when when I, when the pandemic happened like so many people i had my i had some tough days I didn't know what the, what the future was going to look like. You know, I didn't know I wasn't always hopeful, but then I would see young people helping to sign up people in their community for the vaccine. I would see young people 
you know, advocating for, for getting back to school safely. I would see young people protesting about the social inequities that were happening in our country. And I, w- I, was, I would get excited and I would get reminded about what we can do if we just remember our purpose and our passion. So to me, mentoring is something that feeds both ways. It feeds both that young person who you're pouring into, but it also feeds you as that mentor. Dr. Watson, this has been a most fascinating conversation with you. I know we will have more time with you on the part two of this um, here at Rise Up. So, but right now, this is all that we have for this episode. And I want to thank you, Dr. Watson, and my co-host, Mindy Ofiana, our director, Rodney Cahudo, our uh, chair of communications and marketing, Carol Robles, our advisor, PNAA Foundation President Nancy Hoff, our executive producers, PNAA President Mary Joy Garcia Dia, and Executive Director Carmina Bautista. Join us every Wednesday here on Rise Up. Until then, keep on rising, and we'll see you next time. We'll make sh- it's uploading. Great, great conversation, Dr. Watson.